Imagine if everything went wrong, like your boss is irate and being mean to you, or you get a phone call and one of your friends um, is just raking you over the coals. You're having all these interpersonal relational challenges and in the midst of all of those things, you are just so poised and gracious and kind and humble and patient. You're navigating all of those things. Man, all these wins that you're stacking up. And then you get in your car and someone cuts you off in traffic and they give you the one finger salute. And then you think to yourself, mm, I bet you know what I could do right now? I could just save the world if I just honked my horn and I cut them off in traffic. Oh man, that would feel good. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Sam, and I've been attending Gateway alongside my wonderful husband, Evan, for about two years. And we're both part of the Gateway Worship Ministry. Um, usually I'm over by the drum kit, so being on this side of the stage is a bit new. Um, but we are very blessed to be a part of this church family and being a part of this community. And I'm so happy to be uh, reading the scripture today, which comes from 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down to the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maun, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his, in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers, and give it to men coming from who knows where. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. This is the word of the Lord. The golden rule. The golden rule. Are you familiar with it? goes like this, do unto others as you would have them, do unto you. That's right. And the golden rule is great, I'm sure, for many of you here. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in a Christian or a religious household, that was the rule of thumb in your house. And it's great, except there's just one problem. The golden rule works until you're mistreated. 
then you want to take the golden rule and you want to modify it to say something like this. Do unto others as others have done unto you. Right? And then in that moment when someone has wronged you or they've mistreated you or someone that you love, it feels like justice to respond in like kind. Right? And so you respond to injustice with justice. They've wronged you and you need to make it right. In that moment, you kind of feel like the Avengers, like, like Thor, and you take on the evil forces of Thanos. Right? You're like out to avenge yourself. To make wrongs right. And it feels good. It feels right. And yet, I think for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we know that this is not the way. And then there might even be times in your life when you're not able to respond in like kind to those who have wronged you. And so the, the golden rule revenge version, it suddenly devolves into something like this. Do unto someone as others have done unto you. So maybe even in this room, some of you, when you are growing up, maybe your parents, your mom or your dad, they were harsh or cruel to you. And now that you have children of your own, you find yourself making some of the same mistakes to your own shock. You think to yourself, why, why am I doing this? Or maybe, you know, you have a really mean boss or co-workers and, you know, they, they're berating you all day, but then you go home and, and you take it out on your spouse. Or maybe your, your parents growing up or some adult figure in your life, they were harsh or cruel to you. They should have been trustworthy. They should have been someone that you could trust and they broke that trust. And now that you've become an adult on account of that, you can't trust anybody even trustworthy people. And anyone who tries to kind of break in to all that armor that you've put on and they try to peel back those layers and they try to graciously love you and care for you, you snap at them like a viper because it just, the pain is, is too much. And so maybe you've been hurt it, you've heard it said this way, hurt people tend to hurt people. Isn't that true? So the golden rule, it works, but typically when it comes to revenge, we want to misconstrue it and we want to say, I want to do to them what they have done to me. It feels like justice. Let me share with you something you already know. Since the dawn of time, since the beginning of humanity, the human race has been caught up in a loop of vengeance that does not end. We are all prone to this. And the question I think that we're going to be facing today as we look at our text is, why are we so motivated by vengeance? You know, I was talking to staff this past week, and uh, you might notice all the Advent stuff. It's all put away, and I shared with the staff, get rid of hope, love, joy, and peace. Let's move on to vengeance. Happy New Year. You're welcome. But it's tough, right? Like, these, these are the things that we grapple with. These are the feet on the ground kind of situations that every single one of us faces in our lives. And so you might even be familiar with the word of God when he says this in Exodus chapter 21. This is immediately after the Ten Commandments. God says this to his people, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise 
for a bruise. And this might sound really odd being in your Bible. Like, God, is this really in Scripture? But here's what you have to understand. God wants to limit the depravity, the sinfulness of the world that we live in. Our desire for vengeance. Our interpretation of vengeance goes a little bit like this. It's justice plus interest. Justice plus interest. I want to hurt them the way that they have hurt me plus interest. And so it goes a little bit like this. You insulted me. I'll bruise you. And then the other person says, you bruised me, I'll cut you. And then they say, you cut me, I'll dismember you. And they said, you dismembered me, I'll take your life. And on and on and on and on it goes. We always want justice plus interest. Look at the news. Look at the world around you. This is the life we live in. Broken people in a broken world who insist on breaking things. This is the predicament of us all. And so here's the way that I put it in your note sheet. This is the problem of humanity. Wickedness begets more wickedness. Wickedness begets more wickedness. How's that for a sad intro, man? And so we're looking at a story today that showcases in remarkably vivid detail two things. Number one, the problem, what is wrong with the collective human race? Why do, are we so thirsty for vengeance? Why do we want so desperately not only to make wrongs right, but to respond to evil with evil? And then right on the heels of that, even more importantly than that, the solution to the problem, the antidote, if you will, is brought up in this text, how we can properly respond when we want to enact revenge on our neighbor. And I think this is a message that all of us need to hear. Maybe, just maybe, God has to do a good and a difficult work in us today as we look at this difficult text. Because here's what we know to be true. All of us have hurt someone whether intentionally or unintentionally. And all of us knows what it feels like to do good, to enact kindness, and for that kindness to be thrown in your face. Where others have responded to your goodness with evil and it incites rage inside of you. This is the human predicament. And so the question is, what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God in the midst of a world that wants to enact vengeance each and every day? Here's, here's kind of what I want you to see right on the front end. We're going to talk about this for the next 35 minutes, but I want you to picture this in your mind. You are never more like Jesus than when you forgive someone who doesn't deserve it. If vengeance is the badge of the world then forgiveness is the badge of the believer. And yet, you know, as much as I do, that's really, really difficult to live out. This is 
a challenge. So let me bring you up to speed on the story. Last week, we saw David and his uh, 600 men. They are on the run for their lives. They're hiding away in a cave. Saul figures out that they're in a particular region, and he just so happens to go and have a potty break in one particular cave without any of his men, and it just so happens to be exactly the same cave that David and his men are hiding in. And so David's men, they say, David, now's your chance. Go up, stab him in the back, and then everything can be better. You can go to the throne. We can go back to our families. We don't have to have any further bloodshed, army against army. It's just one guy. Just stab him in the back, and everything is fine. Everything can move on. And then David, he has the wisdom and the winsomeness to know that this is not of God. And so he does not respond with his own desire for revenge. He is able to overcome the temptation from his friends to morally compromise, and he ensures that he does not twist scripture to his own words and his own desires. He says, I'm I'm not going to do that. But that's what makes this story so interesting, because we're about to see that David was able to pass the big test, but he's about to fail in the little one. He passes the big test, but he's about to fail in the little one. So if you have your Bibles, look there with me. We're going to march through like we normally do, 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'd love for you to have that in front of you as you look for that. David is fresh off his encounter with Saul. And uh, for the next period of time, we don't know if this is a year, maybe at least half a year, a number of months, um, he is on the run in the wilderness. And in that time, David sort of becomes like, Robin Hood and his merry men. He finds good work to do in the wilderness, forming all of his men into a group of good Samaritans, if you will. They station themselves in a high crime district, and then they try to become the protector of Israel in that particular region, saving them from bandits and from thieves and from raids against the Philistines, they want to do a good work for the sake of God's people, even in the midst of them being on the run from King Saul and the establishment of Israel. He says, no, we're going to do good work. We want to bless this nation. They are like an unofficial watch group. That, that's kind of how they picture themselves. And that's where we pick up the story, verse 1. Now Samuel died... And all of Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. Now, I don't want you to see this just as a historical footnote. Samuel's going to pop a, a little bit later, but the author puts it right here because the author wants you to feel the angst of the story. Remember, Samuel, he's like a mentor to David. He's the one who believed in him when no one else did. Even David's own father, Jesse, when Samuel says, bring me all of your sons, he omits David. He's the runt of the the litter. He won't amount to anything. And Samuel is the one who puts his hands on him and anoints him, and now he's gone. So this is kind of the trigger for us that something's about to go down. David is vulnerable. Verse 2, a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, which means fool, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was intelligent and she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. 
but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. So like I shared with you, David and his men have been protecting Nabal and his property from raids from the Philistines. Even Nabal's own shepherds, they will report of David and his men. This is in verse 15 in your Bible. They say this. These men were very good to us. Night and day, they were like a wall around us. And so it was customary in those days, during the time of sheep shearing, to give gifts to people who helped you over the course of the last year. And so we see, starting in verse 4, David tells a couple of his men, go to Nabal and ask for a gift, whatever they can give. Right? He doesn't have an expectation for how much, just... Are they willing to give us a gift? Because again, it's the golden rule revisited. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so David's like, we were good to you. Please be good to us. We were kind to you. Please be generous to us. You know, we, we saved and protected you. Would you give us something in return? And so I was trying to think of something that we do today. And the best example I could think of is a waiter or a waitress. Right? So when you go to a restaurant, you know that they are paid by the restaurant to serve you. They're, they're not paid by you. They're paid by the restaurant. And yet, you know that it is customary to provide a tip for them. Right? You, you give 10, 15, 20, 25. You give, you give a tip to them based on their exemplary service to you, based on the way that they have served you. And not to do so would be considered rude. And in the same way, that's what's going on here. That's the custom at this time. And so David and his men, they choose of their own volition to be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man watch group for this particular area. And they still do have an expectation that Nabal will give something during the time of sheep shearing. Look at verse 8. They say, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find. So again, it, it's... What, whatever you got. He has no expectation of what or how much. Just whatever you can afford to give us, would you please be kind to us as we were kind to you? Well, the person that they are communicating with is a man named Nabal. And as I shared with you already, his name literally means fool. And that's everything you need to know about this character. And apparently he has developed a reputation for this. Like, I can't imagine that a parent named him this. Like, I know there's some weird names out there, but that would be cruel, right? That would be really mean. So I'm guessing here that he has developed a certain reputation and everyone in his community calls him fool, calls him Nabal because he's mean and cruel and corrupt. He's a fool. And so that's the man that they are dealing with and so the story continues in verse 9 when David's men arrived they gave Nabal this message in David's name and then they waited of course Nabal makes them wait Nabal answered David's servant who is this David who is this son of Jesse many servants are breaking away from their masters these days in other words I don't owe you anything I didn't ask for any of this. Get out of my face. Now, I want you to think with me again um, about that restaurant image. 
Imagine for a moment that you worked at a restaurant and this huge, huge, huge party, they come in, they rent a private room, and you and a couple of runners are assigned exclusively to this table in this private room. So you're not getting tips from anywhere else, you're just all in on this one table. And you serve them hand and foot. You go above and beyond the call of duty. You do everything in your power to ensure that they have the best night of their lives and they're there for five, six, seven hours past midnight and eventually the bill comes, it's over $2,000. You're like, hey, I'm gonna get a pretty good tip. You're doing the math in your head, 15% of 2,000, oh man, that's, that's not so bad. And then he hands back the bill for payment and you notice that he doesn't write anything on the tip portion. And being the kind, generous person that you are, you say, oh, sir, um, I think you forgot to write out the tip portion. Now imagine if he responded like this. I'm gonna give you two scenarios. Imagine if he said something like this. Listen, your whole team, they did a fantastic job. I could tell that you were like sprinting down the halls, bringing it back to us, waiting on us hand and foot. I just, I just don't believe in tips. You know, um, I think it's a ploy from restaurants to underpay their staff, and so I, I just don't do that kind of thing, right? In, in that particular setting, you might be angry, you might be disappointed, you might say, don't take it out on me, but you won't feel vengeful, right? You'll just be disappointed. But then, let's try on a different analogy for size. Imagine if he said something like this, you fool. Of course I'm not gonna give you a tip. I bet the only reason why you're a waiter in the first place is because you flunked out of school and you can't get any other job. Like a monkey could have done your job. Like what, what do you expect? I'm not giving you anything. Imagine if that was the response. He not only is cheap, but now he has offended you on multiple levels. I think you're gonna be angry. And that's what's happening in this story. It's one thing if Nabal is cheap. It's another thing that he is hurling insults at David. He says, who is this son of Jesse? So he clearly knows who David is. He knows who his dad is. And we're going to see this multiple times. This is the first of many incidents in which an enemy of David says, who is the son of Jesse? Which again, it seems like the whole nation of Israel knows the inside scoop that when Jesse was asked, bring your sons forward, David wasn't included. He will amount to nothing. He's the runt of the litter. Clearly, David does not have a good relationship with his father, and Nabal just stepped on it. And so now David is out for bloody revenge. The story continues, verse 11. Why should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back, and when they arrived, they reported every word. At which point, if this was a movie, I think the music will start to turn ominous. Dun dun. What's happening next? Verse 13. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. David is insulted. He is outraged. He is ready to exact bloody revenge. What is revenge in our mind? It is justice plus interest. He's ready for it. And remember the golden rule revenge version? Do unto others as others have done unto you. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants. And so he says this to his men. Look at verse 21. 
He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Well, that escalated quickly. Wow. It seems abundantly clear to me that Nabal's vulgarity has provoked a vulgarity in David. That Nabal's evil has provoked an evil, a wickedness in David. But here, again, is what's so interesting to me. Remember where we were last week. We have King Saul who is out to murder David. David is enduring such harsh ridicule and shame and torment. He's running from his life. And finally, Saul is laid out on a silver platter. All he has to do is stab him in the back and everything's done. He doesn't have to murder anyone else. He doesn't have to go to war. One guy. And he won't do it. He won't do it. And this is King Saul, right? So he passes the big test. But in this particular incident in which he's dealing with a literal fool, right? In comparison to Saul, he's just a fool. He's just a guy. And not only does he want to kill Nabal, but everyone in his village? Does that make any sense? What accounts for that? How is it the case that David was able to pass the big test, but he's about to fail in the little one? How is it the case that he sees the maniacal King Saul as someone who is made in God's image, but in this particular instance, he sees Nabal as nothing other than a piece of garbage to dispose of, he and all the men in his village? How does that make any sense? Well, let me ask you, um, have you ever had like a really terrible day? Anyone? Really bad day? Thank you for truth givers, all the liars. I forgive you. It's okay. <laughs> On those days, you know that, like, imagine if everything went wrong. Like, your boss is irate and being mean to you, or you get a phone call and one of your friends um, is just raking you over the coals. You're having all these interpersonal relational challenges. And in the midst of all of those things, you are just so poised and gracious and kind, and humble, and patient, you're navigating all of those things, man, all these wins that you're stacking up, and then you get in your car, and someone cuts you off in traffic, and they give you the one-finger salute, and then you think to yourself, mm, I bet you know what I could do right now? I could just save the world if I just honked my horn, and I cut them off in traffic. Oh, man, that would feel good. I'm talking for a friend. So how, how is it that the case that oftentimes we are able to succeed in the big things, but we fail in the little things? Well, here's something that all of you know. All of us have a sin nature, the traitor within, and that there are many times in our life that we're trying to be so faithful to Scripture, we're trying to be so just, and then something just pops up and, and we fail. And I find it actually a comfort in knowing that David is remarkably just like us. He's just like us, faithful in one instance and unfaithful in the next, out for vengeance in the next. So we have Nabal the fool, and then we have David who's about to act like a fool in response to the fool. And then we're introduced to a third character, and her name is Abigail. And Abigail means the father's joy. 
she showed up in verse 3 in your Bible. The text says that she is intelligent and beautiful. And don't, don't just think about outward beauty. Don't think about that. The author wants you to see that Abigail is truly a beautiful person. And we're about to see that unfold. And so when she hears about what her husband did, she makes the logical conclusion like, you know what, I think knowing David, knowing humanity, here's how David's going to respond. And she jumps into action. She puts together an enormous gift basket that takes donkeys, that's plural, it takes donkeys to carry all of it. A huge haul of food and grain and sheep and raisin cakes, the whole works. And then she starts heading out toward David and it all culminates in verse 20. Look at this with me. Chapter 25. Verse 20, she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine. There were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. So I want you to see, again, the books of Samuel, they're filled with pictures, right? They're filled with pictures to help us see what is happening in the unseen realm. We see David and his 400 mighty men, they're all dressed for war, and they're snaking down into a ravine, into a valley. And then there is Abigail. She has no sword. She has no weapons. She has no entourage. And she's coming down riding on a donkey. Let me ask you a question. Have we ever encountered a situation in which two parties have come down into a valley for a confrontation? It's David and Goliath again. That's what the author wants you to see. It's David and Goliath all over again. But this time, David is playing the part of vengeful Goliath. And Abigail is playing the part of humble David. A confrontation is about to ensue. And it's even interesting to me, uh, some of you will recall, how many stones did David pick up and put in his sling? Do you remember? Five. Five stones. Now, look at your Bible. I find this really interesting. Look at verse 18. Among other things, Abigail brings how many dressed sheep? How many? Five. And then look at this. How many measures of roasted grain? Five. So it's pictures, right? Pictures, pictures, pictures. Helping us see what the author wants us to see. Verse 23. When Ab Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and she bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Now this is really interesting. She is the wife of a highly successful, powerful, rich person. She is what Hebrews would call a suzerain. She is in a position of power. And yet in this particular instance, she gets down off her donkey. She abdicates that power and she humbles herself before David. Pictures. Who does that remind you of? We'll come back to it. Through her actions, Abigail reminds David of how the gospel works. Do you remember the theme of this book? God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. And through her actions, Abigail is going to highlight the message of the gospel, why God should be trusted even in the moments and the instances in which we want to enact revenge. And so in essence, she says two things. Here's the first one that she highlights. She essentially tells David, humble yourself and draw near to God. Draw back to him, David. And she does this not by telling him, but by showing him. She is an example of the gospel, lived out, standing before David in the face. And he has to confront himself, his own foolishness, his own ego, his own stubbornness. 
his own desire to return evil for evil. And so it's interesting what Abigail does. Instantly, she treats David as the man that she believes he can become. She doesn't talk about his intent to go out and to murder every man in the village, but she talks about who David can be and who David is in God's eyes. She talks about David's potential, his ability to work with God to make a kingdom contribution. And if I can just say this, this is a bit of a sidebar, but for those of you who have significant relationships, those of you who are married, those of you who are parents, those of you who are close friends and mentors of people, this is what your loved ones need. Not for you to berate them, but for you to speak to their God-given potential, for you to speak to who they are in God's eyes. But I gotta keep going, so hang on to that. Whatever it means for you, I think that's just really important, but we can't spend too much time on it. Verse 26. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming you, my Lord, be like Nabal. May they be like Nabal. And so from here for the next four verses... She speaks to who David is in God's eyes. In God's eyes. She gives him a renewed vision of who he is created to be through God. She essentially says, David, remember who you are. Remember your anointing. Remember God's mercy in your life. She's drawing David's eyes up, 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 away from his circumstances, away from his desire for vengeance and to exact bloody revenge and toward the throne of God. Look at God. Look at his faithfulness. Look at what he's doing for you, casting that vision for him. And can I just say this? We all need Abigails in our life. Men and women who are willing to stand in the gap for us. Men and women who are willing to defend against the darts of the evil one for you, to intercede the throne of God on your behalf, to speak to your God-given potential. Men and women who are willing to risk offending you even at the cost of themselves, at the risk of themselves because they love you so much that they're willing to endure harsh ridicule or torment or angst or frustration or even the loss of a relationship because they love you that much. They're willing to do that, to intercede for you. And that's one of the reasons why we're so big on life groups. There's nothing magical about life groups, but here's what we know to be true, that when you Velcro God's people to the word of God and to fellow Christians, you will grow. And we want you to be in those meaningful, significant relationships where God does some of his best work in circles where we're looking at each other, trying to engage in iron sharpening iron. Abigail speaks the gospel to David when he just can't see it, when he's unwilling to see it, but she stands in the gap for him. And then she says this in verse 29, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, that's Saul, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living. Circle, highlight, underline by the Lord your God. What an amazing image. What she's getting at is in the ancient world, much like we do today, they had wallets, right? What do you put in wallets? Credit cards, money, 
precious, valuable possessions, things that you don't want to get stolen, right? You put it in, you fold it up, you put it in a secure spot. It's not on the outside of your clothing, it's on the inside. Why? Because these are your most precious things. You don't want to lose these things. In the same way, in the ancient world, they had wallets. You'd put things inside, you'd fold it up, you'd wrap it up with string, you'd put it inside your clothes, and then you'd wrap it around a belt, indicating for any thief, any person who wants to steal this, your messaging to them is, over my dead body. If you want this, then you're gonna have to take my life. You're not gonna be able to steal this thing over my dead body. And in the same way, Abigail wants David to see that's how God treats you. God says, over my dead body. You are bound securely, David, in the palm of, of God's hand. He will not let you go. He will hang on to you. Gather some perspective, David, away from your circumstances and toward the promises of God. He's got you. And that's what we need to remember, too, in our moments of weakness. In our moments where we are so thirsty for revenge that God has you securely in the palm of your hands. And so she moves after this in verse 29, the, the second half. She says this, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. I love that. Once again, she's got David going all the way back. So she was talking about the future, God's future promises, and now she's brought David back to God's past faithfulness. How can we trust God in the future? As we look to his faithfulness in our past. God will hold you. God will protect you. God will take care of you. His promises are as good as done. Why? How? How can I possibly believe that? Because he's been 100% faithful in your past. And she has just brought him back to the most significant climactic moment of his life when he's fighting against Goliath. That's the image of the sling. He's 17 again, or 15, 16, 17, 18. He's a, he's a young teenager going up against Goliath, she's reminding him of those moments in which he wasn't driven by his own ego, his own personal desire for revenge, but that he was so willing to lay down everything for the sake of God. God, it's in your hands. I put my trust in you. Even in the moment that I'm facing this 10-foot behemoth of a man, you got this. And she has just transported him back to that moment. So here's the outcome of her message to David. We see David's response in verse 33. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Through Abigail, he was reminded of the faithfulness of God. He was no longer caught up in the pride of his own self-importance. None of that mattered anymore because she reminded him of two things, the promises of God for his future and the faithfulness of God in his past. And so I just want to impress upon your hearts, be far more concerned with your character in God's eyes than your reputation in the eyes of others. Be far more concerned with your character in God's eyes. He's got you. 
the question we have to ask ourselves is this, is God sovereign or not? Is he in control or not? And just like David, it's far easier, easier to trust in God's promises in our past than it is in our future. Yeah, of course. When we are facing difficult circumstances, we want to take control. But Abigail reminds us, David and us, to put our trust in God. So look at these three characters. We have Nabal, and he returns evil for good. And that's maniacal. That's a whole lot like Saul. That's full of sin. And then we see David, and he returns evil for evil. And I would just like to propose to you, that's predictable. I think a lot of us see ourselves in David. That's, that's exactly the way that I feel. When someone does something wrong to me, I want to turn evil for evil. But then there's Abigail, and she returns good for evil. And Scripture says she's beautiful. She's beautiful. The train agrees with me. She's beautiful. Not just skin deep. But we see that the author points to something about Abigail. It invites us to ask a question. How is it possible to become like that? Like Abigail. How can we become like Abigail? And maybe, just maybe, some of you, you're sitting here and you just want to cry out from your seat. You want to say, Justin, I can't do that. They've hurt me. They've wronged me. They don't deserve my forgiveness. I can't let this go. Not after what they've done to me. I will not let that happen to me again. And so, I, I want you to hear from me that's exactly the point. That is exactly the point. You can't do this on your own strength. We need gospel-saturated power to change our hearts. We need to see the one to whom Abigail points. The story, the hero in the story is not David. It's certainly not Nabal, but it's not even Abigail. It's the one to whom Abigail points. Isn't it interesting that in this story, Abigail, she dresses a sheep and she sends it to David. And then she gets up on a donkey and she rides on a donkey, not knowing if this is going to come at the risk of her life. And then when she sees David, she gets off from her lofty position and she humbles herself. She prostrates herself before David. And then the very first words out of her mouth are this. On me alone be the guilt. On me alone be the guilt. Do you see the one to whom Abigail points? Do you see the beauty of Jesus in this beautiful woman? Just like Abigail, Jesus would be called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just like Abigail, Jesus would ride in on a donkey knowing full well it wouldn't come at the risk of his life but at the cost of it. And eventually he would go to a cross. And just like Abigail, there would be moments in which uh, others would be scorning Jesus, spitting on him, mocking him, and he would cry out to his heavenly father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And just like Abigail, he would say, 
Don't look at the foolishness of Nabal. Don't look at the foolishness of David. Don't look at the foolishness of Justin. Credit it to my account. On me alone be the guilt. That's what Jesus did for me. And that's what Jesus does for you. And so how could you possibly have the heart of, Ga- of Abigail when you've been wronged and mistreated and maligned and dehumanized and harmed? How could you possibly forgive them in the midst of that? I promise you, if you try to do it on your own strength, your track record will be exactly like David's. You'll succeed in one moment and you'll be out for bloody revenge in the next. You'll teeter between the two. You'll struggle. At some moments, you'll succeed. In other moments, you'll fail. And you'll never know the rhyme or reason for it, especially in moments of weakness. You'll just be out for it. No, we have to see the one to whom Abigail points. And so I want to propose to you a new golden rule, what I'm calling the golden rule gospel version. This is what I think our prayer needs to be when it comes to revenge, for us to be able to pray something like this. Lord, do unto my enemies as you have done to me. Do unto my enemies as you have done to me. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? Here's the definition of forgiveness that I want to give you. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean an endorsement of sinful behavior. We even see at the end of the story, God takes Nabal's life. David doesn't follow through on justice. God does it. God will avenge. The Lord will take care of this. That's how that story ends. Number two, it is not necessarily an exemption from consequences. And number three, it is not a full restoration of trust. It's none of those things. But here's what forgiveness is. I put it in your note sheet this way. Forgiveness is entrusting those who have wronged you to God's justice and then praying that God would treat them as he has treated you. Friends, the only way that you are going to have the ability to do this is if you are overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus and what he has done for you. So here's how I want to close today. Um, I just sense that there might be some people in this room who have been thinking about certain people or a certain person in your life who has wronged you who has harmed you. And you see their face right now. You can picture them in your mind's eye. And I just think the Spirit of God has been talking to some of us, whispering, you need to forgive that person. You need to lay this down before the throne of God. You need to give this to him. And if you are here today and there is a Nabal in your life and you are coming before the throne of God and you are saying, God, I want to do this. I just don't know how. Oh, God, I don't want to forgive them. They've hurt me. They've wronged me. They've ridiculed me. How could I possibly have the courage to do that? Then as I've shared with you, the only way that we will have a heart of flesh is if we see Jesus and what he has done for us. So there's two things I want to give you. 
The first one is if you're grappling with what does forgiveness mean? I, I know that this is a daily sacrifice, not just a decision I make today, but it's a decision I have to make tomorrow. I can't pick up the resentment tomorrow. I gotta let it go. I have to, have to give it to the Lord. Then there's a resource uh, that we developed this past week. It's in the lobby. Some of you have it already but it's a forgiveness guide, and I entrust that to you. Keep it in your Bible. Use it as a future resource. And the second thing I want to do is I want to pray for you. I want to pray that the Lord will do a good work in us, that we would be marked as a people, not who are out for revenge, but who insist on entrusting people who have wronged us to God's justice and then praying that God would treat them exactly the way that he has treated us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of the gospel, Christ died for us. And so I want to pray for you. And so I invite you to bow your heads and let's go before the Lord our God this morning. Lord Jesus, this is a topic that is so difficult because it's so visceral. Every person in this room knows what it's like to wrong someone else. And so in that, in that way, we're all like Nabal. We've responded with evil to evil. And also in many ways, we're like David. When others have wronged us, we want justice plus interest. And we ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts that, you would, that we would see the beauty of the gospel, that we would see what Jesus has done for us, that we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it. We spat in your face. We were like the centurion soldiers who took the nails and nailed them into your hands, who put a crown of thorns upon your head, who spit on you and mocked you and ridiculed you and tormented you, and at any moment you could have said, it's not worth it. Oh, it's so not worth it. But you stayed. You stayed for me. You stayed for us. And Lord, we ask that you would take this reality, this gospel, to change us into people who forgive. As difficult as it is, that we would hand it over to you. And so we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would do a good work in us, Lord Jesus. Make us more into the image of your son. Make us more like Abigail, whose name means the joy of her father. Make us the joy of you, Heavenly Father, in the way that we love you with our whole hearts and the way that we love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.